This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we're going to hear the story of a remarkable surgery and the work of two SLPs at the Center of Rehabilitation. In 2021, Aaron James accidentally made contact with a high-voltage wire while working as a lineman. As a result of the injury, he lost an arm, his nose, and his left eye, and he severely damaged the left side of his face. Then in May of 2023, Aaron received what's being billed as the first ever full eye and partial face transplant. Two SLPs who worked with Aaron at NYU Langone Health joined the podcast. They share their unique story as they helped Aaron reach his goals, such as eating solid foods with his family. At the end of the conversation, we'll hear from Aaron James himself. Now, let's hear from the SLPs. Meg Lico is a speech-language pathologist with the NYU cleft and craniofacial team. She also works with the NYU face transplant team. Caitlin Hanley is a senior SLP on the inpatient team at NYU Langone. The first voice you'll hear is Meg's, as she explains how she first met Aaron in 2022 as a part of the plastic surgery team for a pre-operative evaluation of Aaron's speech, voice, and oral motor and swallowing skills. We were lucky that we had already had some information, both from his wonderful speech team in Arkansas and in Texas when he had his immediate acute care, as well as from my colleague and Caitlin's colleague, Dr. Ballou, who's absolutely wonderful, who had performed a swallow study here at NYU. When I saw him, he had multiple injuries. He had sustained an electrical voltage burn, which led to his arm being amputated, as well as losing the anterior third portion of his tongue. He had a trach and a G-tube. He only could open his mouth about nine millimeters. It was scarred open, so he had no range of motion with his jaw. He could only take thicker liquids through by mouth, but it wasn't enough, so he supplemented with the G-tube. And uh, he had some dysarthric speech as well. We had planned to complete a preoperative evaluation to see where we were at. And it was really interesting because we found that one of Aaron's largest goals was to be able to eat again with his family. And he said that one of the things that he feels like he lost in the injury more than anything else was the ability to open his mouth, to chew the things he loved, like meats and pizza were two big things for him, and to be able to swallow again. So when I saw him in 2022, we completed that baseline evaluation prior to his transplantation because he obviously needed to wait for a candidate. And then he received his transplant in May of last year. Caitlin, you came to this patient a little bit later. When, when did you begin your involvement? So much later than Meg, I had worked with the previous face transplant patient on the inpatient side, both in acute care and in rehab. And so we had heard that there was maybe a candidate that was coming down, but no real details until he actually was in the hospital. May of 2023 was when I kind of got involved and then, you know, met Aaron after his procedure when he came kind of off the vent and was ready for speech and swallow. Okay, so he was the first person to receive a full eye transplant with a partial face transplant. And the eye is pretty remarkable, but as you mentioned, you're working with speech and swallowing. Meg, what were you doing to prepare for working with Aaron? 
That's a great question. So the first thing that I did when I found out that I was going to be working with Aaron and that his main goals were to address the trismus and the swallow dysfunction were to do a deep dive in the research. And as Caitlin would agree with me, we unfortunately did not have much to go off of in the research because this is so rare. And then you add in the eye procedure as well with our wonderful oculoplastics team. And there was essentially no research or very limited research, I should say, out there for face transplants in general. And then you add in any kind of swallowing research or evidence-based research in regards to that. So what I had to do and and also what Caitlin had to do is really pull evidence-based research and and evidence-based practice from other populations that had kind of similar characteristics. So I know for me, it was really um, head and neck cancer and any kind of head and neck surgery research and try to see where I could utilize that research with my own clinical judgment to prepare. And it was a lot of working with the family to establish goals prior to him receiving his transplant. And then the other big piece was starting to make contact with the inpatient team. And I think Caitlin and I can both agree that we're very lucky to have each other because there isn't that much research out there. And Caitlin always makes a great point that There's no expert we can just go to, right, in the field where we can go see them at ASHA and ask them all about this, right? There's really nothing like this out there. And we're very lucky to work at NYU where there's this great innovation, but at the same time, it is scary. I went over to the inpatient side and introduced myself to Caitlin, and we really started to collaborate, which I feel very blessed and and lucky to be able to do with her. Caitlin, tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about your collaboration. Yeah, so I actually, having worked on like a previous face transplant, had some experience in terms of just kind of how the process might go, although each transplant is obviously very different. And so it was really, really nice to have someone like Meg who was really eager and willing to collaborate because it is kind of scary to not have anyone to lean on to be like, this is right, right? We're going down the right path. There's no roadmap for kind of how you would treat someone status post face transplant. And so having someone like Meg to just bounce things off of to say, oh, this is where I'm coming from. And like Meg said, pulling some of the research on kind of more of like the neurosurgery research areas. And so it was for me like a blessing. I didn't have that at the last during the last face transplant. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah. And if I can just add, I remember when I first saw Aaron's status post um, face transplant, I was so eager and excited to get started. And Caitlin very kindly reminded me of synkinesis and the importance of avoiding synkinesis because I wanted to just jump in and have him start talking right away. And, and we wanted to get working on a lot of the sounds that he wasn't able to make before he had his surgery, like bilabial phonemes, to be able to have that consideration and that constructive discussion in a really collaborative setting and, and really a positive setting without judgment or someone feeling territorial was really incredible to me. Caitlin, we've been talking about face transplants. You've worked with someone with a face transplant in the past. When we're talking about a face transplant, because they're not very common, could you tell listeners what a face transplant is generally and maybe what the SLP's role is with people who receive them? That's a great question. Each face transplant is actually very different 
because you do have to consider why they might need this face transplant depending on the like previous damage to the face that will determine kind of what is transplanted but it's usually kind of like skin muscles nerves and bone depending on what was damaged kind of prior to the transplant so the role of the speech language pathologist actually kind of is different each time so the last time that i worked with the face transplant patient he had relatively functional speech and swallow so there wasn't as much of a role for me outside of kind of that you know he was in the icu so he had just come off a vent he did have a trach so we did some speaking valve stuff at first but beyond that it was pretty normal it was do a normal bedside swallow. He looked fine. But for Aaron, Aaron had, you know, a lot of his face transplant was different and he had a lot of difficulties in different areas in speech, in voice and in swallowing. So after he got his transplant, we kind of worked on on all of those things. And, and that's where, you know, having Meg she knew him before his surgery, so she was able to kind of get a baseline for where he was at before so we could use his goals to work towards what he wanted to kind of in those three areas. Meg, tell me a little bit about meeting Aaron and what his goals were. So when I first met Aaron, I met him and his wife, Megan, who's a wonderful, wonderful person as well. The two of them were very eager to get started. They were two of the most tenacious and driven patient and patient partner that I've ever worked with. We immediately bonded over SEC football, which made things a little bit easy when we started chatting uh, initially. And I utilized a lot of evaluation tools to come up with goals in addition to patient kind of shared decision making, talking about, okay, what's your number one priority? And then we kind of utilize what we knew about face transplants to manage expectations, talk about timelines, and also collaborate with our surgical team, who is absolutely wonderful. We had a lot of interdisciplinary meetings within plastics, as well as working with the team that did the eye transplant as well, and really coming up with a plan together. And Aaron was actually a large part of some of those conferences where he would be physically present when we were speaking about the case, that he could provide his own input. I'm very thankful for the collaboration with our surgeons. I think Caitlin and I both feel very privileged to be able to work with other professionals who aren't in the speech and swallowing field here at NYU Langone who value what we can contribute. And when they realized that Aaron's goals were very much focused on speech and swallowing, and a couple of examples of those goals included, you know, he had to wear a mask a lot of the time because he had quite a bit of anterior saliva loss. One of the goals was saliva management. One of the longer term goals was to be able to chew and eat solids, which we were working up the IDDSI chain, as many SLPs know. And on another goal was to be able to kiss his wife, which we, we haven't yet really achieved a pucker, but that is on the horizon. 
Brooklyn, hopefully, as the nerves integrate. And so we had a lot of great goals, but then the important part really is about advocating for those goals and talking about the importance of our role as the speech pathologist, both inpatient and outpatient. And so that's where we kind of started. And then we looped in Aaron and the rest of the team who was really amenable to prioritizing these sessions pre and post-operatively. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the advocacy you had to do to make sure that you had the time to address Aaron's needs? In terms of the inpatient side, because we had had, you know, a few face transplants that had come through over the years, and also it was still kind of a relatively rare thing for NYU to do, all of kind of my leadership was very, they let us have as much time as we need and whatever we needed to prepare to see Aaron and also to kind of see Aaron. The schedule wasn't blocked out because it's inpatient, but I was given, you know, whatever I needed in order to, to see him. He was on the transplant waiting list for quite a few months. So initially I saw him in 2022. He didn't get his actual transplant until May of 2023. Thankfully, I had some time to really do, again, a deep dive into research, which there wasn't really quite too much to go off of, and establish those connections with inpatient prior to starting with him in an outpatient kind of setting once he was discharged from the inpatient side. The biggest piece for me was it was actually, you never know when the transplant's going to happen. So you have to be kind of ready and waiting on your toes. There's so much that has to be matched from a candidate to the donor that you never know when it's going to happen. And it's really exciting, the process, when you find out that it's happening. And all of the surgeons I work with who are amazing just kind of spring into action. And it was a very, very long surgery. And then as soon as we found out that he had successfully underwent the operation, I immediately that week planned to go in to see him. We're very thankful, I think, that and we recognize also that this is not the case at every hospital across the globe, but we are very lucky that our administration really prioritized speech and swallowing for us. There was some advocacy after the fact, making sure that things, again, more just timeliness of getting a swallow study when Caitlin and I felt he was ready to go on to some more difficult textures and and go up the levels of the ITSE chain. And so making sure that the NPs and the doctors were very aware of his progress with us. So I would say it was maybe less about preparation and more about ongoing communication. I would agree with that. I think that that's where having our kind of partnership, inpatient and outpatient, Meg working kind of directly with the surgical team in the outpatient world, in previous face transplants, we had some more face time with the surgeon, but this time I think Meg was my wonderful go-between. So we were able to get orders for swallow study and have the clearance to do that when Aaron was ready. Meg says there were subsequent surgeries that followed, like some complex tissue and cheek rearrangement and removal of teeth. She says she would collaborate with the chair of the department who leads the face transplant team. And Caitlin calls the ongoing collaboration with the continuum of care and surgical team a special thing. I asked about the progress Aaron made related to swallowing. Following the surgery and the swallow study, Caitlin says they were ready to try solids. One of the first things we tried because 
it's a hospital and there's not much on the floors. We tried a bite of a sunflower butter and jelly sandwich. And he had some salt and vinegar chips, I think, early on because he was really craving them and his daughter had left them at the bedside. But he got to, like Meg had mentioned before, he got to eating a pretty functional diet early on. I mean, we worked on kind of oral clearance because, again, he was missing part of his tongue and he didn't have any tone in his cheeks to kind of help with the oral clearance. But yeah, like by the summer, I think, right, Meg, we, he was eating solids and his family would bring in food. Meg says she took over once Aaron was discharged. After a swallow study, she felt they had the green light to move ahead. We really got creative in the outpatient setting. So one of the roadblocks was that he didn't yet have full sensation in his oral cavity in terms of knowing when the water, if we were working on cup drinking water with just thin liquids, he didn't know when it would hit his mouth. And so sometimes he would have this anterior loss. We actually worked on a kind of a chin up posturing, which, you know, usually a lot of everyone likes to talk about the chin tuck with him. Chin up seemed to work um, to help with that oral propulsion, given the lack of his tongue. And then on top of that, we actually utilized a one two count strategy. So working on tipping a water bottle or a cup and after counting to two, giving himself kind of a finger occlusion with his non amputated hand to be able to close the lips until he was able to get to that lip closure place. And then we were working on chewing as well, placing foods on the molar shelf. Again, he can't really feel much. We used a mirror to help him really see that placement and to kind of help it become more muscle memory until those nerves integrated. By the end, I think our biggest victory in outpatient was being able to have his first New York piece pizza, which he was so excited about. It was very exciting. And it's kind of funny because he was so mad because he couldn't smile yet. But he was like, I'm just so thrilled. The other big thing was he hadn't really had the ability to smell since his injury because he lost most of the nerves. He really didn't have much of of a nose. And so being able to reconstruct a full nose for him, he was then able to... he had the sensation of more taste and more smell. So he used to have to put intense amounts of hot sauce on everything just to be able to taste anything. And now he can have a pulled pork sandwich with barbecue sauce and be able to have that feeling and enjoyment of eating again. So that was one of the biggest victories. He just had Thanksgiving with his family once he went back to Arkansas and he was able to have his first Thanksgiving meal in many years Those are real big functional wins. And I think Caitlin and I would agree that this is exactly why we do what we do. That's exactly what I wanted to ask. And Caitlin, maybe you can give me some insight here. What did it mean to you as an SLP to see Aaron engage with food in this way? It is exactly why I do what I do. Aaron is such a special patient, but in the inpatient world, like a large majority of what we do is swallowing. And so getting to work with someone who hasn't eaten, for Aaron, it was years. For some of our other patients, it's not as long, maybe days, maybe months, but getting to see them with some of their first bites and sips and like enjoying food again, you know, to people where food means a lot, like is really special. And I think it's why like 
the job that I do, like I continue to love, you know, I'm going into my 14th year. (laughs) And so it's still really special when you get to be part of that. And I talked to him recently and he talked about his first Thanksgiving and that's just, those are real memories that he gets to enjoy now, kind of after the work that Meg and I did with him. We were talking about the emotional side of this and we talked about, you know, the emotions with food, right? And this is why you do it. I wanted to ask about the challenging or stressful emotions that were a part of this as well. And if your collaboration helped with that. Was this ever difficult for you emotionally and were you able to you know, find sympathy from each other in a way? It was my first recipient of a face transplant that I had worked with. And while I feel pretty confident and competent in regards to the field of craniofacial, this is new territory. And I think that many SLPs listening can relate to a feeling of imposter syndrome a little bit. And I, I don't know, Caitlin can attest to if years of experience, if it gets better. But certainly for me, there is a level of, do I deserve to be working with this patient? Am I doing the right thing? Sitting in some of the conferences I had to sit in, you know, with the whole plastics team listening to them, it is overwhelming and exciting at the same time. And so I think Caitlin and I both have this exciting work ethic and tenacity for learning new things about the field. And we do plan on writing up a case study about this and kind of contributing to research as well. And so we're really excited about that. But at the same time, there is a a level of fear, I would say, when you work with a any kind of case where you there's literally nothing to go off of. You know, it's much easier to work in a textbook situation where I've got all of this research and evidence to rely on. And I know, okay, this has been backed up in research. I mean, I still utilize clinical judgment, but it's not relying as much on that. And so it's easy to get nervous and and also just being nervous for Aaron in general. You know, this is a very high risk surgery. There was a level of emotion involved and, you know, I really wanted to do right by him and by our team. And so I am thankful I had Caitlin, who was really the only person who could understand exactly what I was going through and what I was feeling, despite us being in different stages of Aaron's continuum of care, let's say. Yeah, I agree with that, Meg. I think that years of experience, like... It can only really go so far, you know. I still think that it's still a really novel thing to have someone go through a face transplant. And also, there is a not a lot, but there is some pressure to, like, I mean, okay, like, let's make him talk again, let's make him eat again. Like, there is this pressure to make sure that we can help him and fix him, kind of thing. And I think having someone like Meg, where we were like, okay, like we're going to kind of go to whatever research we can find. We're going to talk it out and we're going to kind of make this plan. And to have a patient like Aaron, who was so kind of gung ho on like, all right, like whatever you guys think, like, let's do it. He was down for kind of anything. He would practice things that we gave him on his own. I think that it wasn't for me it wasn't stressful emotionally beyond like obviously wanting Aaron to be able to eat again and, and to be able to talk again and kind of live a normal life. Um, But having someone like Meg for some of the, she described that anxiety around like, am I doing the right thing? Is there a right thing? Was 
I think, again, like part of why like this collaboration between like the inpatient and outpatient side for this particular case was really, for me, kind of remarkable. You talked about entering the unknown, right? That there's not a lot of literature on this. I'm thinking of other SLPs that may be facing similar situations where there's not a lot of literature, or they may just be entering into something that they're not personally as familiar with. It made me wonder if if you could go back and give yourself advice at the beginning of this, not clinical advice, but kind of more philosophical, what might you tell yourselves as you began working with Aaron? One of the big things would be to trust yourself as a clinician, right? That we've had training, you've been doing this job for a very long time. There's always going to be new things that don't fit the mold, but to lean back on the years of experience that you have while also reminding yourself that you don't know everything and reaching out to whoever to kind of get more information or some guidance or to just check in with. When I first started the face transplant before Aaron, I felt very much like Meg where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And like we've said before, there's no expert to say, oh, you know, how do you do the face transplant therapy? What does that look like? I reached out to an expert in the field of facial reanimation and she is an occupational therapist and she was so wonderful and so generous with her time and really kind of made me realize that there's a lot of people in our field who are really willing to sit down and talk and share information that they know, even if it might not be exactly what you're looking for, it might help you kind of critically think about what the situation you're dealing with and be able to put some of those pieces together with a little bit more clarity. And then to have colleagues that you can really talk through things with, like, you know, Meg and I, we were fortunate and and I have a really big inpatient team that I feel fortunate to be able to bounce things off of and say like, does this sound right? Like even if they're not going through exactly the same thing, to be able to talk through something and get feedback, I think is, you know, really valuable. And I think something that can help get you through a novel situation or a scary situation or something you've never done before. Meg, Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Meg Lico and Caitlin Hanley are SLPs from NYU Langone Health. They worked with Aaron James, who received a full eye and partial face transplant in May of 2023. Meg shared some gratitude at the end of our conversation. She says that an important piece of this story is the way the interdisciplinary team championed and instilled confidence in her and Caitlin. And she wanted to thank all of the SLPs, OTs, and PTs who've worked with Aaron, as well as Aaron himself, for being such a wonderful patient. I spoke with Aaron and his wife, Megan. Aaron says he feels good. He says everything is going the way it's supposed to. I mean, everything we've worked on, all the goals that we've set, we're just clicking right along. Aaron's working with an SLP in Arkansas now. I asked him about the goals he mentioned, including the ones he made with Meg and Caitlin related to feeding and swallowing. He wanted to eat the way he used to, without needing a straw or tube. I thought of the New York slice of pizza that Meg and Caitlin mentioned, and Aaron also remembers that moment. You get a little nervous when you see something that you haven't tried in 
two years, you know, and I was nervous, I was excited, because I didn't want to eat it too fast, because I was like, man, I just want to throw the whole thing in my mouth if I could. But yeah, I mean, we just took our time, and, you know, slow, and Meg was watching there, but I mean, it, You feel safe with her there. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. When I spoke with Meg and Caitlin, we focused a lot on feeding and swallowing. But Aaron says his progress around speaking is one of the things he's most proud of. He told me about the work that went into that. And he mentions his paralyzed vocal cord, surgeries that were performed to allow his jaw to open up, and the removal of part of his tongue. We've just been working on vocalization, trying to get my voice tone right, and my pitch high low up like that and my grieving, you know, using my diaphragm, that was the very first thing they stressed. He said, you know, use use your diaphragm, you know, and it takes the stress off your throat and everything. And I mean, it's just you don't realize what all goes into just saying a word, you know, until it's explained to you. When it comes to the work of SLPs, he says it means everything to him. Communication, you know, talking and eating. I mean, that's that's a good part of life. That's something that that's how you celebrate things you know, and survive and you know, there's a lot make of, relationships. There's a lot of emotions, you know, with speaking and mm-hmm. people get together on holidays to eat. Last year, Aaron was able to eat with family for Thanksgiving. They said it was the first Thanksgiving he joined since the accident. There's one more thing Aaron said that I want to highlight. I asked Aaron if there's anything that surprised him about working with Megan Caitlin. Here's what he said. Just how personal they were. I mean, they really, when I worked with them, it didn't seem like I was working with a therapist. They would come in or I would come in and we would sit and talk for a minute or two. And, you know, they really got, they really got you comfortable. They really care about what they're doing. It's not just the the medical side that they're yeah. working. I mean, they're they get involved in what's important to you right. as well to right. know which way to also lean into with your therapy. Right, because I mean, everybody's different. You know, one yeah. thing might work for one person, not the next. So they really take the time to get to know what's really going on. And we consider them friends. Gregor, you know, I mean, it's not just a once in a, just when we see you, I mean, you know, we still talk to them while we're at home. Aaron says the SLP's investment provided motivation. Seeing his SLP celebrate his successes would make him want to jump up to the next level. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. I'm J.D. Gray. This is ASHA Voices.